Gabriella, your work is all about making the unconscious conscious. But what is it that you would most like our listeners today to take away from our conversation? The thing I'd most like people to take away is really thinking about the unconscious in teams, which isn't something that we generally think about. But just as it's always affecting us individually, the unconscious is always affecting teams and their dynamics. And if we understood that, we would be far better able to work more deeply or think more deeply about what's going on in a team and therefore help them to work at their best. Hello, our guest today is Gabriella Brown, founder of Consultancy Working Well. For over 20 years, she's been applying psychoanalysis and systems theory to the workplace. Gabriella has worked with organisations ranging from the British Library and the University of Cambridge to RADA and UNICEF. Gabriella has set out to share how psychoanalysis can help us all improve the way we work together and the humanity of our workplaces. Presenting as a collection of short stories, her book, All That We Are, Uncovering the Hidden Truths Behind Our Behaviours at Work, teaches us that thinking more deeply, acknowledging our unconscious and reflecting on our own actions are not only ways to enhance our personal lives, but key to success at work, especially in developing exceptional teams. I'm Robert Diggings, and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work and learning how to love the ups and downs on the journey to sustainable human collaboration. We have one simple aim to help you create world class teams wherever you are and wherever you work. In our conversation today, Gabriella highlights how curiosity without blame is the place to start that teams go a bit mad under stress, just like individuals, and why the pull and push are equally valuable. An organisation can be much more in its constructiveness if it attends to its destructiveness. We've all had that gut instinct moment at work. You've been asked to lead on a project or work with someone new, and your first thought is, oh no, I can't do this. Most of the time at work, we push this feeling aside and buckle up. But what might we learn if we stopped and asked ourselves, why did I think or feel that way? How come that was my first response? Psychoanalysis and depth psychology in general focuses on our unconscious process with the aim of revealing more of who we are and creating opportunities for change and growth. I started our conversation by asking Gabriella how she defines psychoanalysis for the clients she works with and why there's value in bringing it to the workplace. I don't try and specifically define it because it might put people off. But what I do explain is the key to why I'm using it, which is that I use it because it is... I think the most sophisticated method we have for understanding human nature and it thinks about the unconscious. And there are things that we take for granted in the family, for instance, sibling rivalry, that we never think about in the workplace. But why not? Actually, just as it's in the family, I've not met an organisation where there isn't 
something going on about sibling rivalry. So I'll bring the concepts into the workplace and I find that incredibly helpful. It gives us a much deeper level of understanding about what humans are doing at work and after all humans make up the workforce so it has a massive effect. I know it's going to be a really rich conversation and I'm so interested personally and professionally in the work that you do and the depth at which you work uh, and I'm curious about all sorts of elements of it, about how, how clients receive the work, about where you can take the work as opposed to the analysis that might happen in a, in a private setting for an individual that um, wants to work um, with, a, um, with somebody in that way, a professional in that way, as opposed to a work context and whether mm. there are places that you can't go or choose not to go. I'm curious about how on earth you came to uh, be using psychoanalysis in, in a corporate setting. Uh, um, uh, you're the first person that I I've met, the first consultant or practitioner that I've met that makes that an explicit part of their work, if not what their work is is all about. So I'm really fascinated uh, by it. Um, I, I get that you don't want to define it for, for uh, fear of putting people off. Psychoanalysis has, is, a, is one of those words, for me at least, that has a kind of, ooh, factor to it, like, ooh, what's that? And, and, uh, and where might that go? And and a kind of link to Freud and maybe to um, Adler and Jung and um, uh, possibly Asajoli and the practitioners going back to the early part of um, the last century. So I'll, I'll push you a bit more then. Uh, if you don't want, maybe if you don't want to define it, what is it? What 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 do we mean by psychoanalysis? Okay, and it actually thinking about it, it's probably not true that I don't define it for fear of scaring off clients that's probably not true actually I suppose what is what I do do is when I'm starting with a client I don't want to go into endless this is what I do this is how I do it you know I don't want to start by talking ad infinitum about theory um, I want to get going more so in the workplace what I do tell clients is that I am not clinically trained and I am not going to be analysing them. It's not appropriate, and I can't anyway, but I, I wouldn't want to. But what's so appropriate and helpful in the workplace is thinking about the unconscious, thinking about some of those things that are going on un that we can't see. They're buried under the table, they're under the carpet, but they're affecting us all the time in the workplace. That, I think, is incredibly helpful. Do you remember that advert? Heineken beer, it goes, it, what was it? It reaches oh, the parts of other, other beers yeah. cannot reach. So it yeah. allows us to do that. It goes to places other things I think can't reach. It helps people and it's not me when I'm working with clients, either individually or as teams. It's not me teaching them. It's us working together to work out what might be going on. So I suppose what I do that's, very psychoanalytic is that I make interpretations about what I think's going on but I'll also do things that you know I'll ask questions I'll be pretty ordinary I am ordinary I think in in my work um, but I'm thinking all the time about what else is going on as well as what's being said what might not be being said what am I, what, one of the things I'm doing which is psychoanalytic is I'm paying attention all the time to what I'm feeling 
So in psychoanalysis, which I don't go, I don't explain to clients, but they'll probably notice me doing something. I don't know if they even notice. But what psychoanalysis does is work with what's called the transference. So the feelings that go from the patient in analysis into the analyst. And then the analyst has counter-transference, their response to what's being projected into them. So I'm using that, I'm working with, like I might find myself, um, like the other day I was working with a team and everything was fine. And I started to feel anxious. Now I didn't say to them I'm feeling anxious. Sometimes I might. But I often wouldn't, but I'd use it as information for myself. And what I connected was something with a, a, a worry that I thought someone had just passed over, but was actually causing a lot of anxiety. And I had a hunch that's what I'd picked up. And that's what I did. I, I made the interpretation that I thought X was actually of, of significant worry, much more than had been spoken about. And yes, then they talked about that. So in, in, if I'll just play back what I think I've understood, you are using your own process, your own personal experience in the moment, in the room with the team, your feelings, thoughts, body sensations, uh, anything in fact that you could say, I'm experiencing this at the moment. You're paying attention to that as much as perhaps you're paying attention to what you actually see and hear going on in the room or, or there's a certain a significant element of your attention on what's happening for you and in you. And you're interpreting that as being valuable or you're, or you're holding that, those your personal experiences being valuable in, in the work that you're doing with the team um, at the time or the individual at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. There's one important thing to add to that, which is that I had years of being a patient in psychoanalysis. And that means I'm reasonably well able to differentiate my stuff from the individual or the team stuff. Yes. And I think that's really important because otherwise what I may interpret is something that is mine. So if I'm feeling anxious, it might be nothing to do with them. It might be mine. And I've got to, what would be very dangerous is me to start interpreting my stuff and making it their stuff as if it was their stuff. So I think it's really important to have a, a good awareness of your own stuff so that you don't start dumping it mm. on individuals and teams if you're going to work at that level. Which points to something that is um, both delightful for me and also um, obvious, uh, having looked at your book and your work and, and understanding what you do. Um, you could only do this if you've done a, an enormous amount of work on yourself mm. uh, because otherwise it can just become... It's too much. It's too complex and, mm. uh, to unpack unless you've spent a lot of time. I presume hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of your own um, mm. reflection on your own on who you mm. are and your own process mm. with your with your analyst. Um, who I thought it was lovely that in the acknowledgments at the back of the book you um, thank um, mm. first of all. I'd I'd love to uh, find out a little bit more about that process. Uh, I'll declare my uh, interest because I'm. I'm at a point where I am uh, wanting to go into analysis mm. myself. I've had a lot of therapy in my mm -hmm, time mm -hmm. um, 
as will a lot of our listeners, mm. um, both the executives and and um, managers who may be listening, as well as the consultants and coaches, of mm. course. Is that not what human relationship is, a, a, a dance around what's what's immediately obvious and what's going on under the surface? So I'm trying to understand what it is that somebody with your expertise brings to the team process that isn't happening in some way anyway. Yeah, good good question. Let me start with the team bit and then we can go back to the, your your interest in the <laughs> kind of lying on the couch bit. I hope that I'm not the only person uh, listening to you who's interested in your own analysis. You're the only, I think I said to you before we started, you're only the second person I've met in my life who I know and they declared that they've had analysis. Mm. So it's like mm. you're a you're a very rare that doesn't mean that there aren't a I'm lot a rare of people. Being. Yeah. There yeah, may be yeah. lots of people I've met who have had analysis. They just haven't told me. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe there aren't that many. I don't know percentage wise what proportion of the population yeah. Yeah. has had analysis. I don't know. Yeah. Um but let me say something about teams. I mean I agree with you that we're always doing a dance around kind of what's obvious and what isn't. Hmm. What's conscious and what's unconscious. Yeah, or, we or the are. the unconscious is, is uh, somehow coming up into consciousness. Is that, totally, that, yeah. totally. But we might not recognise it. Yeah. I mean, it comes out in all sorts of ways, like slips of the tongue it comes out in. Um, like uh, women in organisations, often their periods get synced. Yes. Great example of the unconscious, actually. Um, like uh, I often, one of the things I pay attention to is who sits where in a team. And there's often, you know, you might notice something and I'll say it and they'll all look at each other like, so there's all the people wearing red are there and the people wearing orange are there and the people wearing black are there. The men are here, the women are there. You know, we do think, we, and then they'll look and think, oh, how did that happen? You know, the unconscious said something. But there's a theory about teams that's used in psychoanalytic work that I talk about in the book. And I think that does show something quite significant about the unconscious in teams. And this theory was developed decades ago by the analyst Wilfred Bion. Um, and it's called, it's, basic, it's about basic assumptions. And those of us who work like this still use it today. It's totally relevant. It's never stopped being relevant. And what he said was that under stress, teams go a bit mad. I mean, he didn't use those words, but they go a bit mad just as individuals do. And that they go into a basic assumption state of mind. So their basic assumption, which is unconscious, is that they're there to either fight or flee from an enemy, which I think a lot of listeners will recognise, like when there's a great big fight, an us and them, you know, that department's bad, we're good, the union's bad, the management are good, the other organisation's bad, we're good. That's a kind of fight flight. That was one that he said. So it's as if they're no longer really there to do the work. They're there. Their main purpose is to fight or flee from an enemy. They might be very busy, but they're probably off task because they, they've now got a different task. Um, another one he came up with is that they're there. Their basic assumption is that they're there to depend on a leader. So they give up all their 
competence and they just blindly follow the leader. And again, people will recognise this, I think, where, you know, a, a manager who suddenly people are coming to him or her saying almost questions of what time is it, you know, questions that the manager thinks, why are they asking me that? You know, they're in a basic assumption dependency state of mind. And the third one Beyond came up with is pairing, what he called pairing, which is harder, a bit harder to get a hold of. But it's basically like where the idea is that when a pair gets together and it could be, say, the leader with the new chair of the board or or it could be with a new idea that's coming in, um, then everything will magically be resolved. So the team in that state is always looking at the future and they're in a very happy state. It's quite excited. It's like the Messiah is going to save us. We don't have to do anything now. We don't have to worry about the present. We don't have to do the work it needs because that's going to happen in the future and everything will be magically all right. This is all unconscious stuff, but it really affects teams. And it's a part of thinking about teams that isn't commonly understood. I think if we go there, we can... It's not bad that teams go into this place, the same as it's not bad that individuals go into what psychoanalytically Melanie Klein called a paranoid schizoid state of mind, which is a bit nuts, it's not a bad thing, but it's a bad thing if we just stay there forever. So let's just recap on that. They're called basic assumptions. It's um, Beyond's work uh, where it originated. I imagine others have um, developed it and and different takes on it. And and there are three. Is that correct? Three. Three basic... from Beyond. Uh, three from other Beyond. people have developed uh, two since, and somebody else developed another one. There's at least three been developed since. And the the words you used to describe them were fight, fight, fight or flight. flight. Dependency pairing, those were beyonds. Excellent. So where I've gone with what you've said, tell me if this is um, valid or not, is that you said that this was all to do with stress. Mm. So I see those three responses as survival responses. Mm. Kind of, um, we, we've either got to, we've got, we're under stress because our survival is at stake somehow, possibly literally in, if we go back to, you know, go back 50,000 years or something uh, where where the world was, um, our, our survival was more um, immediate perhaps than mm. it is um, in, in today's society for some, for some, of, for some of us at yeah. least. Um, <laughs> and that, that fighting, um, engaging and fighting or, or running and fleeing or, or seeking uh, a solution. I, I, like I, I don't know what to do about this survival, but I, there's someone, a, a, a tribal leader or um, a... Um, a shaman or somebody who we can who will tell us what to do would be for me the dependency piece and then the the pairing is almost like someone is coming as you said the the messiah is coming is it, it did 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 he see this as as about survival and if not, not what necessarily about survival although you have a point absolutely um and he did say for each of those there's also a healthy part of those so fight flight the healthy fight flight is the army that's their job you know that's what they have to do so there's a healthy part dependency um healthy part when we go to hospital if we're a patient we have to allow ourselves to be dependent we have to take the expertise of the doctor if we don't 
how are we going to allow them to treat us? So there's healthy, there is there's healthy, healthy of there? all of the, all of yeah. them. Can I ask you a really dumb question, which is, well, there's several about the unconscious. So how do we how do we know how do we know we have an unconscious? Can I go back a step before I go to that? Yes, I will come to that. So the bit that what Beyond said was it's we go into those places under stress. It's anxiety. It's a response to anxiety, which we have all the time. But a lot of it is in the unconscious. We won't necessarily know about it. So how do we know we have an unconscious? We make slips of the tongue. We do things that might seem a bit off kilter. Here's an example. Um, Years ago... uh, my sister and I were dealing with a very tricky family scenario and we arranged to meet someone in a restaurant to talk through this scenario. We picked a fish restaurant and the person we were meeting hates fish and we had, in quote marks, forgotten, completely forgotten. We knew, but we'd completely forgotten and I, I say that's an example of the unconscious because it was quite a vengeful thing to do, to pick the one kind of food that that person hated. And we weren't doing it consciously. But our unconscious spoke to our fury with this person and we were furious. So there's an example of the unconscious. Um, And continuing my... Um, run of foolish questions. So if if it's if, not foolish it, at all. Well, um, it it's um, it shows a, a lack of understanding. Uh, although I guess I have some views of my own, but I'm really curious about what conclusion you've come to. So if we looked looked at our the whole of our consciousness like a uh, like a uh, an iceberg, and what's above the water is uh, is conscious process, and what's beneath the water is unconscious. Um, how big is it? <laughs> In other words, I don't know. I have read articles that attempt to assess the size of our unconscious compared to our conscious. I wonder whether is it? Do you see that as a relevant question at all, or can you give us some sense of? The I scale can kind of, of say it's big, <laughs> big. But yeah. also, what I would say is the size will vary, because if we're in a very open state of mind we might have allowed a bit more of our unconscious to become more conscious. If we're in a very defended state of mind, we ram it down into the unconscious. It's not static. So we repress things that are very difficult for us. They'll be rammed down. They come back in difficult ways to bite us on the bum. Um, But as I say, and if you have analysis, you're making more of your unconscious conscious but you'll never not have an unconscious and there'll be times again when you're ramping things down so your the size will increase does that answer well i I love the idea that it's big (laughs) that's fantastic (laughs) very technical (laughs) very precise (laughs) for what it's worth my sense is it's at least as large as our conscious if not bigger would you i would think so yeah yeah Another thing that's kind of like um, obvious, it would be well, but, but the pro- you say you you you're telling us you work with the unconscious, and, uh, but of course the problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious. Yeah. On on that, um, what would we say the boundary perhaps between what's conscious and what isn't? There is a lot of flexibility, 
And it's possible, so you tell me whether this is correct or not, it is possible to bring this stuff that's kind of just under the surface, if we stick with the uh, iceberg uh, metaphor, there is, there is material, um, thoughts, ideas, um, grievances, unhappiness, joys, whatever, that are just out of awareness. And it is that it is work, the work that you do is about surfacing and making that more explicit and noticeable or, or conscious. Is that true? Or can in fact material come from any of any De- any level of the unconscious and become I think useful. it can come from any level yeah. and I won't know and clients won't know. I mean, I remember once this was in individual coaching um, and I suggested something to, the, to my client and she said, oh, my God, this was the core of my whole analysis. She had had analysis and she... So I had gone to something very central to who she was. I didn't know that's where I was going at all. I just talked about something that had come to me from what she was saying, what I was picking up, what I was feeling. And maybe the fact that she'd had analysis made it more available. I don't know. I don't think... I I wouldn't say that it's at that just below the surface. I don't think... I know no. that. I don't think no. that's so no. it could it could material. So again, let me play back what I think you're telling us is that you're uh, you've come to believe or your understanding is that material that's unconscious that can be surfaced either because it grace moves or how it just happens or through the work that you might be doing with a team that that unconscious material can come from anywhere within the unconscious. Yeah. The idea that it's coming from the surface is maybe yeah. not very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I like that. And also in a team is complicated, is very complicated in a team because they'll have, of course, every member of that team has their own unconscious responses, but the team also is doing something collectively and that's unconscious too, like those basic assumptions. So there's some unconscious processes. Also teams and organisations generally start to share their defence mechanisms. So... They, they're they a collective in that way, but they don't know about it. Very, very good. Some people listening, I make up, might kind of be thinking, so what? Why do... The, uh, yes, we can pay attention to these things, the fact that the people in red are sitting over there and the people in blue. But, but in a, in a um, personal inquiry context... I can see that almost everything is up for inquiring into, you know, in my, uh, for me, at least in my everyday life, it's like everything is, I can be curious about everything. And there could be value in um, wondering why I'm sitting on this side of this table and you're sitting on that side. And I always sit here and I have a sense right from the start that this was the side I was going to sit on. Um, But in a work context, how how do you know that there is value in even noticing that people are sitting in a certain place or that, oh, when you said that, I felt slightly anxious, you, you as the practitioner felt slightly anxious or... So how, how can you explain to us how you know, because you obviously do or you wouldn't be still doing what you do, how do you know that there is material value that a business would 
value that a business would go, this is valuable? Okay. Um, Because you can get to the real issues. Because if you only work at the surface level, and yes, of course, in a way it's absurd to worry, and I don't worry, but to even think about the people dressed in those colours are there and people dressed in those colours are there. It's absurd. But it's not absurd when you think about, oh, so there's something else going on in this team that nobody's conscious about. And it might, that the fact that they're grouped like that represents that there's other things that go on that they're not talking about, they're not thinking about, but are f- affecting them. And actually, by the way, it in terms of absurdity, it's not absurd about who sits where in an office. And it's often a huge issue, a bone of contention. I remember a coaching client coming to me when he was in coaching with me and he said, this seems so ridiculous, but I'm, I've just been promoted and I'm worrying about where to sit. And I said, it's so not ridiculous. It's a really good thing to be thinking about. So I think the also those apparently little things aren't little. They send messages to the team. They have impact. So I think those are worth thinking about. But the bigger issue, take change programmes. Everybody's always doing change. Loads of corporates are engaged in change programmes. Loads of change programmes fall flat on their faces or do a minuscule amount of what was hoped for. Why? Often because they're working at the surface, because they're not taking into account the deeper levels like the loss involved in change, the grief that might be part of change, the adaptation, the anxiety, the personal stuff it will trigger. You know, we all have been through changes, good and bad, in our lives. What might that be triggering when the workplace is doing it? What if we're worrying that, oh, my God, this means I'm now going to be exposed for not being competent enough? All all those things are at a deeper level. And if we don't go there, we can come to solutions that actually won't work because they're, they don't take into account any of the depth stuff. That's how I know it works, because they get to... They get teams in places where they're working for real, where they're actually tackling what matters. Thank you. Very, very helpful. So in the way that I I said, and I absolutely uh, mean it and believe it to be true, that in order to work at depth, the practitioner has to have done depth work. Or kind of the idea would be you you, I can't take a team somewhere that I haven't, or an individual somewhere that I haven't uh, gone myself, or at least entertained the idea that it was possible to go there. Um, and so maybe my my own process is one of the one of many limits to what I'm able to offer. Does it does it also mean that you need in your practice to work with teams or organisations that have a particular orientation to depth? Or or, or is it just that, in fact, because it's people and we all have depth and on some level we all aspire to be in contact with the depth inside ourselves and meet the depth in others, does it mean that, in fact, you could work with any organisation 
Um, I think in theory we're all people and we all have depth and in a way we're all yearning to go there is absolutely right. It doesn't mean that everybody is suitable for analysis and it doesn't mean every team is suitable for my kind of approach or every organisation because it might just be that they're, they live in concrete thinking and they're not, it will dismantle them too much to go and it's not appropriate. It's not how they operate. So that is, and that's absolutely fair enough. That's completely valid. Generally, if people ask me in, it's there's a good indication that it, we are going to find some fit because otherwise, why did they ask me? But not always. Um, so occasionally someone's asked for coaching when they need therapy. But they, it's easier maybe to think, oh, I need a coach than it is to think I need a therapist. And I will refer them for therapy. I mean, one of the things that can be problematic is that someone invites you and you're not the person they end up work you end up working with. But I'm I'm quite careful to look at that. And you know, a an individual might ask me and then I'll say, why don't we meet with the team and then let the team think about whether we're a fit me and the team also think about it. So I'll generally work with that and and that's fine. Let's move on to Another thing that is clearly very important to your work because you've structured the book around kind of in three sections, and um, if I've if if I've if I've understood what you're attempting to say or what you're uh, the reason why you've done that, there's a section about kind of knowing who we are and the pro- process of greater understanding of ourselves and. Uh, that we bring all of ourselves to the workplace, and we 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 might want to leave aspects at the door as we walk in, but it's um it's, it's just not possible because we can't split ourselves completely in that way. We can repress stuff rather than leave it leave it out, and maybe it then becomes more powerful through through its repression than it would be if we were more um, upfront about it. And then the second and third parts of your book are about um, kind of a, a destructive process. And then a generative, or I think you use the word constructive process. So can you say a bit about how come you have made so much of that by the way you've structured the book? Why why are you highlighting a destructive movement and a constructive movement in human relationships and endeavour? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. And the first part is about, you know, the fundamentals of being human. I'd say all three parts are about, and well, illuminate more about who we are and how we function individually and in teams and in organisations. Um, why I made a big deal of the constructive and destructive parts is that one of the things I think we often don't know about in terms of ourselves and therefore our organisations is that we we are not coherent beings. We're built as incoherent beings. We have inherent tensions within us and we all have a destructive side and a constructive side. Um, Freud talked about the life drive, which is the drive to 
not just live, but really be engaged in life. And the he talked about the death drive, which isn't just about dying, but it's about, you know, just kind of giving up, not bothering to have the difficult conversations, wanting to stay in bed and put the duvet over your head, a kind of apathy. Um, and within those come our destructive and constructive parts. And I see them in... It's one of the things you said earlier, we can't do this work if we can't go to those places ourselves. So I think we, as consultants, if we're going to do anything like this, have to be able to really recognise our destructiveness, which can be bloody painful and hard to do, as well as our constructiveness. Developmentally, the destructiveness often comes first. You know, we're we're more divided first then we are then we gradually get more integrated which allows more of the other stuff in and, and teams might see this in their um i guess in their self-sabotaging in well individuals absolutely individuals and teams, and teams can, yeah absolutely can, can. absolutely and it's certainly i see it a lot in organizations the kind of pull and push between the constructive and the destructive the pull the pull and push to really work at our potential and be at our best and for the organisation to be at its best. Something people really want and really desire. And it's a mistake to think we don't have other desires. And other desires at times will manifest themselves. Like, we want to pull things down. We want to sabotage things. We want to be vicious. Yes, but we want to, absolutely, we want to destroy this or yes. break it up. Or... yes. Yes, um, or we want such to a bad think rap though that that um, that's do do you do you see these two things as equally valuable and wonderful? Or, I, uh, or I see them as equally valuable and as things we have to work with. We can't pretend that one doesn't exist and only focus on the other. We can mainly. An organisation can be much more in its constructiveness if it attends to its destructiveness. There'll always be destructiveness. Mm. And to, to pretend that's not there means it will be being pulled into that more than if they acknowledge it and address it in the organisation, in the individuals, in the leadership, then they can keep... I think it's a constant effort in an organisation and an individual to keep pulling ourselves to our constructive side i think it's what politics is about except politicians don't think that but you know actually in a, what do we want in a society from the way we're governed we want to be pulled to our more constructive side actually a lot of the way we've been going is the opposite you know to enhance division to enhance fracture that's our destructive side we can all follow it because we're used to that, we know it, but it's not helpful to us. It's not helpful to us individually. It's not helpful to us organisationally. Although, although, going back to your point about change, change inevitably creating loss. Of course, all change means that something has died, something has ended. Yeah, and so even in in any change that happens, there is for me at least, beautifully beautifully contained, something that's generative and something that's destructive, uh, that, that, it isn't, it, that 
the way life or uh, or perhaps um the universe unfolds is uh, a mixture of things um ending and other things being new things coming yes. in it isn't just a process of newness built yes. continual yes. development yes. um you know stars explode and and die even yeah. in even um, i think astrophysicists will talk about stars dying as yeah. if, uh, absolutely as if they... and death isn't destructive it's that thing of just giving up and being apathetic that can be destructive but death isn't destructive death is what happens mm-hmm. or the manner of death can be destructive of course Yes. <laughs> there is this is such a, a a rich conversation. I'm I'm in, enjoying it immensely. Um there are so many different avenues that we could explore. Let's just come back to the idea of teams and how teams can navigate the some of the complexities, some of the tensions, the contradictions that you're highlighting. Uh, with us today around the what's conscious and what isn't around um, the assumptions that um, that you've spoken about about where teams and individuals tend to go under stress in Beyond's work uh, and around this tension between generative process and destructive or constructive and to use your word constructive and destructive process so somebody listening Um, to this who is in a team or leads a team how could they if they haven't given this kind of thing thought before how could they start uh, a journey for want of a better word or an undertaking with their team that would that would lean into the um, body of work and the expertise that you have Mm. without perhaps calling you and saying sure i've read the do book it. and would please come and work with us <laughs> yeah. which of course doing is another it. option but, but doing can they it do it themselves. themselves to start with what might I've, that look like i think people can do a lot for themselves and i think where it starts in a way is curiosity without blame so the team leader first of all paying attention to their own feelings and being curious about them how come I was in a great mood and then I had that team meeting and I felt awful what was that about so being curious about it rather than putting that aside bouncing off to the next meeting as if that's irrelevant just come out of it go to the next meeting it's relevant it's information you could use it That's one thing. But then also being curious in the team, like, for example, the team's agreed that they're all going to work on A and they're really excited and they're really buoyant and they're, you know, they're going to do brilliant work on A. And actually, they don't, there's quite a bit of stalling around A. And A isn't going as brilliantly as everybody thought it would. And rather than the team leader starting criticising or blaming or resetting targets, actually having a conversation with the team that says, I'm curious, we were all so signed up for this, and yet, and yet, it's not quite what we thought. Can we try and understand it? So that's a very different approach from saying, okay, you were meant to do that and you didn't. Okay, let's reset these targets now. We've got blah, blah, blah. It's a very different approach, just thinking, what what else is going on? 
that means that we're stalling? Can we actually try and understand this better between us? And so I, I see that as a calling, a, a call to for a team to have a conversation about its own process. Exactly. Without blame and with curiosity. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's just a conversation. You're, you're basically saying be, be, um, have a conversation that's based on curiosity rather than just restating the, yeah. the, the, what, the, what, yeah. the what, what had been agreed before and, yeah. and, and telling people to get on with it. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wonder why. I wonder yeah. how come this isn't where we, we exactly. aren't where we thought we'd be. Yeah. Um, you know who who actually perhaps agreed but um, didn't really, um, or who to use your word who who's been who's been seduced by something else. That's... Or maybe those are later questions after seeing yeah. what yeah. comes out from the team. And also the other bit in this is letting our minds just freely go where they go. So actually people might come up with things that don't seem very obvious or relevant, but that's fine. Just see. You might not understand for a while. I'll sit working with a team and at times I'll think, what is going on? I have no idea what's going on. But actually having the confidence to sit with the anxiety and wait until something is more known. There's one story in the book that I talk about where, in the end, we never really knew what had gone on. They were in a much better place when we finished. We, we never really understood exactly what had gone on. And that had to be accepted. I never got it. They never got it. We got as far as we could and they were in a better place and we accepted, okay. Enough I said to them, I don't, I don't think we'll ever actually quite understand this fully. And lastly, is, is there a, I kind of hate to say top tip because the, the, the richness of our conversation and the depth and the kind of like holding and just being curious, uh, I don't know whether it lends itself to top tips, but if you, had, if you, if you were to encourage an individual who's listening to this uh, as something that they could do for themselves that would be useful around understanding themselves more or moving in the direction that you've just spoken, both for them, both for their personal lives and their work lives, what, what might that be? I think it would be paying attention with curiosity. So paying attention to, you know, the fact that you left home late and you were almost bound to then be late for the meeting. Not just taking that as a given, but actually thinking, what? was I up to was I a bit ambivalent about going to that meeting then or meeting that friend was there anything else going on that kind of paying attention and in an organization paying attention to the mood the feelings the the music behind the words what isn't being said paying attention and being interested in it Gabriella, it's um, been a joy to talk to you today. I so much appreciate you coming and sharing uh, the things that you've learned and the, uh, the beliefs that you've um, come to through the uh, enormous amount of work that you've done in this space. It's a fascinating topic and I hope we can get to speak again at some point. Thank you, Robert. I've really enjoyed our conversation as well. Thank you. The Consciously Brilliant Gabriella Brown. 
Thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us today. To find out more about Gabriella's work, head to workingwell.cc and gabriellabrown.co.uk or try her book, All That We Are, Uncovering the Hidden Truths Behind Our Behaviours at Work, published by Piatkus, part of the Little Brown Book Group. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out the show notes for more information about today's guest and the topics covered. We do hope you're enjoying these conversations and getting value from them. Do let us know what you think wherever you're listening or watching. And feel free to follow me on LinkedIn to join in the online conversation. And of course, there's no better way to support what we're doing than by reviewing us and subscribing. It really does make a huge difference to the podcasting algorithm. I'd like to thank today's studio manager at VoxPod Studios, Alex Bennett. Post-production is by Sean Lawson and the series producer is Ella Halsell. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and goodbye.